Today, you're going to hear a really interesting and unique conversation between myself and a close mentor of mine. His name is Zach Mason, and I'm honestly so glad that he agreed to doing this podcast episode with me. I wasn't sure if he was going to say yes or not, but he's literally the perfect person to answer the questions that you guys sent in. You guys sent in such incredible, real, honest questions, and I'm really excited for you to hear his responses and just the level of detail and care in his answers. Zach is somebody who has made such an impact in my faith journey and my understanding of the word. He's answered all of my crazy or what I thought as crazy or controversial questions and he does it with such grace and understanding and just humbleness. So if you're somebody that's listening and maybe you have questions about Jesus or Christianity or religion or spirituality or whatever questions that you're hanging on to that's keeping you in this gray area of, I don't really know what to believe, this episode is for you. And so our conversation lasted about two hours, so I've definitely divided this into a part one and part two. So part one, let's go. Hello, beautiful people. It's your host, Danielle Mason, bringing you authentic conversation, transparency around real life experiences, and actionable tips to create your next breakthrough today. Think of this as your home away from home healing oasis where we overshare and overcome obstacles together. Pull up a seat, come as you are, and be ready to leave feeling challenged to reflect, encouraged to take action, and inspired to change. This is the Blackouts to Breakthroughs podcast. Welcome back to another episode of Blackouts to Breakthroughs podcast. Today I have Zach Mason here with me and by his last name, we're not related, um, but he's somebody that my sister actually introduced me to. Um, He's been doing ministry and been walking with the Lord for 30 years and he's somebody that I really look up to as a mentor when it comes to just studying the word. And so I'm really excited to have him on the show today. We actually got sent in different questions from you all. And so I'm just going to ask him, he's going to answer, and we're just going to have a dialogue and conversation around the questions that you guys sent in. And they're really amazing, honest, real questions. Um, So Zach, I'm super excited to have you on the show today. Thank you very much. Thank you for that great intro, Danny. I'm I'm humbled, but I'm happy to happy to be here and speaking with you. We're just going to dive right in. So the the first question that you all sent in was, how do we know what is real and what is fake, especially if you haven't witnessed it yourself? I thought that was a really great question. Okay, very good. So yeah, that's obviously relating to modern society. And uh, I think you may have mentioned, but I, my name is Zach Mason. I'm the executive director of Path to Hope Ministries, and I also write books. So uh, I do a lot of teaching and uh, done a lot of interaction with people over the years, answering questions just like this. So how do you know if something's real or if something's fake? And this gets to the heart of a lot of our ability to interpret the world around us. The reason is because we see such competing news stories. It used to be you could trust the news. Now you kind of realize you can't. And uh, we're living in a world where even things that seem like they've been videoed, like you see film, now we realize there can be such things as deep fake, deep fake photos, deep fake videos. It's hard to know if something has been created or if it's real. Well, for starters, I mean, uh, I mean, you could go back and say, if you're just worried about fake news, you can uh, anything you want to know about historically, you can go back and look at old books. <laughs> if it's in an old book before people could uh, manipulate it with photography, videography, it's, you can you can trust it a little more. But here's the bottom: we do have the opportunity to access a guide, a counselor, uh, who we call the Holy Spirit. 
Now you may uh, be questioned, well, how do I even know the Holy Spirit is real? So um, let's get to the very basics. You know, the most basic building block of reality is uh, your existence. Do you exist? Lift up your hand and, uh, you know, pinch it, pinch your arm. You exist. Now, if you doubt that, I did speak with a man one time who actually doubted he existed. And I was really hard to get anywhere with him. Uh, I mean, he was looking down at his own legs and saying, how do I know if I actually have legs? So and, strange. <laughs> and, okay, well, if we're at that level of doubt, you know, I can't really help you. Um, yeah. You know, we either exist or we don't. And uh, my mind looks around. I see myself. I see others. I know I exist. I wake up every morning and I'm in my own head still. I'm the same person I was yesterday. I exist. Now, um, when you start looking at your body, you look at the universe, you look at those around us, and it used to be possible for scientists to claim that things could just evolve without the help of a designer. And that was back in the 1800s when we believed that cells were just blobs of goo. Mm. Now we know just how complicated our cellular system is. Cells, each cell is more complicated than an entire thriving uh, city with trash trucks and mail trucks and all kinds of other things, delivering goods, picking up goods. They all have coded features that fit one another. It is so perfectly designed. You get down to, uh, you know, you look at your eye, your eye. We, we still, with decades, century, more than a century of thousands and thousands of engineers trying to perfect the camera, and we still cannot create a camera that is as good as our eye is as far as resolution and uh, just scope of, of intensity of brightness of light. You know, our eyes can see in very, very, very dark environments, and also they can adjust themselves to see in very, very bright environments. We don't really notice the difference, uh, but cameras do, because cameras don't typically work in both. They're not able to uh, modify themselves like our eyes do, and still don't know of a single camera that can heal itself, right? Mm. So, um, you know, you can, you can put distance on it. You can try to say, well, over hundreds of millions of years, anything's possible. Sure, in your mind, that's possible. In our minds, we could say it's possible just because we can't really comprehend that big amount of time. But when you start actually looking at the mathematical probability that things like your eyes, like our cells, like other things could develop over time and hundreds of millions of years really isn't anywhere close to enough time, not even on 200 billion billion solar systems, right? Which is all there is in the universe. We seem to think that's an immense number. It's really not uh, big enough for us to be here by accident. And then when you get down to uh, uh, DNA, DNA is information. It's information. Scientists now know that DNA has not only letters, but it has words and it has phrases and it has sentences and it has punctuation and it has paragraphs. Wow. And it, it can be read uh, like sentences. And the information contained in your DNA is longer than uh, hundreds of encyclopedia sets. <laughs> so where that, that's information. Where did that information come from? Information is always written by an author, right? Always written by an author. You've never seen a book with written words on it and thought, uh, oh, that was just random. Okay, over 250 million years, that book could have formed by itself and written those words itself just by the random, you know, splattering of things and combination in some soup is really not possible. Okay, so 
It's only wishful thinking of people who don't want to believe in a, in a creator, people who don't want to believe in, in intelligent design because that would require them to respond to their creator. Yeah. They want they don't want to respond to the creator, so they continue to hold on to uh, fantasy. Yeah, the fantasy that we don't have a designer. It really takes a lot more than faith to believe there's no God. It takes a willful disregard of science to believe that we don't have a designer. So, the fact that you exist says you have a creator, and it doesn't take long uh, to look around and say is this creator good and loving or is he mean and cruel now a lot or apathetic right apathetic is another possibility and some people question god's existence because they see suffering in the world and they say well if there was a, a good god then uh how is there so much suffering okay so the alternative is that you're saying well so he must be a cruel god I mean, we can't deny there's a God. We just talked about DNA and everything else. So there is a God. That's, we can't really question that. The question is just, is he good or is he mean? And, uh, you know, the fact that we can, uh, you know, you can say, okay, well, there's cancer, there's war, there's a lot of problems in the world. So that's evidence he's not good. Okay. But then I look and I say, well, but all of those things are malfunctions of design, right? Cancer is our design not functioning correctly. It's problems with the design uh, that came from somewhere. Same thing with war. That's obviously human-driven. Okay, that's not God-driven, one could argue. Then, but we look at other parts of nature and we say, well, but we have so many good things when we have beauty. I mean, who looks at nature and doesn't fall in love with it and say it's just so beautiful? Everything from, you know, majestic snow-capped mountains to waterfalls to the Grand Canyon to, you know, your dog that looks at you acutely when you arrive at home and is wagging his tail and makes you feel love. All of that is evidence that there's a good God who also feels love because how can we experience and feel love if he didn't create that? Yeah. Right? Okay. The taste buds on our tongues that allow us to taste so many delicious things. If he was cruel, everything would taste like crap. Yeah. <laughs> In order to survive... It would taste bad. He would take perverse pleasure in watching us eat feces in order to survive. That's not what happens. Okay, instead, he created delicious flavors for us to enjoy, right? He created music. He, he gave us emotions. All of these things speak to who God really is. And these dysfunctions like cancer and COVID and things are the exception. They're not the rule. So those don't really speak to him and his character and his heart as much as everything else does. Instead, there must be a separate explanation for those problems that uh, we're not considering. So we need to consider that further. But uh, so we know there's a God. We know he's good. We know he's loving. And he put, obviously, intricate care and design into us. So that is real. We've just proven that with logic and science. And of course, I've done it very quickly. But <laughs> Anybody who really looks into what's required for us to be here for the amount of information coming DNA, you can't come to any, the unbiased mind will always come to that conclusion. So that's where we're at with that. Now we ask ourselves, so there's a good loving creator that knit us all together. Each one of us, he put all of this loving care into putting our bodies together and giving us such a beautiful world. What is more logical? Is it logical that such a creator would 
then just want to watch his creation go like he's just setting up like a wind-up toy and watching it run and he doesn't want to interact with it at all is that logical is that rational or is it more rational to think that he would want to communicate with us you know think about a um, a video game coder you know a designer of a video game who creates this amazing video game where his character he's actually successfully creates artificial intelligence in his characters his the characters that he creates in the game actually have artificial intelligence they're they're conscious beings inside the video game now would the coder would the video game master would he want to chat with them or not would he want to be able to interact with them or would he want to just let them run and watch them it seems very unnatural that he would not want to, to speak with them, to communicate with them, to talk with them. Yeah. And so we're faced with that. We said, well, then, yes, our God wants to interact with us. He wants to communicate with us. So he must have created ways we can communicate with him, we can hear from him. And the most likely, obviously, is the written word, you know, speaking to people, communicating to people. And there's a limited number of options in the history of the world as to the possibilities for that. And the Bible is the number one candidate. Okay, primarily because Buddhism doesn't really believe in a creator God the way I just described. Buddhism teaches that the goal, that near, you know, nirvana, the goal is to cease to exist, to end suffering by no longer existing. That's not what we kind of see logically by studying ourselves and our bodies and, and the loving care our designer put into it. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. And uh, then with Hinduism, you're talking about many gods, you know, a pantheon, very similar to Greek or Roman mythology. Now, committees usually don't do as good a job as a single inventor. So it's really not reasonable to think that a committee of smaller gods, as described in Hinduism, could create this universe and our bodies with such intricate perfection. Um, that's just not plausible. So our existence drives us to consider that there is one God who has designed everything. And the candidate, the only, the only uh, religious tome that describes that is the Bible. And all three, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, do lift up the Bible as saying it is the word of God. Now, Islam, of course, adds the Quran to it, and they uh, may question some of the books in the Bible, but for the most part, they recognize the book of Moses, they recognize Isaiah, they rec recognize the Psalms of David, they recognize the Gospels as being the inspired word of God. So you have well over around half the world population recognizing that the Bible is the word of God. And it is the most translated, the most popular, the best-selling book of all time. Seems to be a very strong candidate for the primary method, one of the primary methods that God has wanted to communicate to us. So that gives us uh, evidence that we can trust it. We can talk more about whether or not you can trust the Bible or not. That's kind of a separate question. But what Jesus promised us in the Bible is that he was going to send us the Holy Spirit, that all of those who followed him and trusted in him as the Lord and Savior would receive the Holy Spirit as a counselor. Counselor is the word that he chose, the title, so to speak. And as a believer who's been walking with God for a long time and is very well aware of the reality of the Holy Spirit, as all true Christians are, we've all, all of us who know Christ, well, we know the Holy Spirit's real. We feel him, we hear from him, he, got, he does guide us, and he is the ultimate source of confirmation of what is trustworthy and what is not. 
on the on the topic of talking about the Holy Spirit, so say, because I know even sometimes I still question like, okay, is it my conscience? Is this the Holy Spirit? Is this the devil? How can you know, say somebody's walking with the Lord or trying to understand these things? Yes. How can you have discernment to know, is this the Lord? Is this the Holy Spirit? Or is this my own thinking? Gotcha. Okay, that's a great question. So uh, this is kind of a different level. This is for the for those that are followers of Christ who are just wondering, you know, am I hearing correctly from God's Spirit? So let me tell you kind of how I work through that myself and, and what pastors would typically teach. One is you do need to be knowledgeable of the Bible. You need to be in God's Word because one thing you can always be assured of is the Holy Spirit is God. He's God in us, speaking to us, speaking to our hearts and minds and guiding us. So he's one with God. Okay, they're same in essence and, and will. So the Holy Spirit is never going to contradict what God has already said. And I do want to distinguish one thing here, because it's a popular belief today that we say, yeah, God is in us. God is in all of us. No, he's not. Okay, no, he's not in everybody. Not everybody is a child of God. That is a myth. That is not biblical. There's only one begotten son of God, and that is his son, Yeshua, who we call Jesus, the Messiah. He's the only natural son of God. Everyone else is adopted into God's family. And uh, to be adopted into God's family, you have to surrender yourself to him and agree to submit to his son as king, as well as savior. Those who've done that, they have been promised legal adoption into God's family. And that is when you receive the Holy Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit does influence society in general, and he helps people in society kind of absorb goodness at times and fade to a certain morality at times. That's a complicated subject, but it's different from believers who've been indwelled with the Spirit, who have direct access to God now, who are filled with Him. Now, uh, how do you know if you're hearing from the Spirit? Well, one, He's not going to con contradict the Word of God. So if you are asking yourself or asking guys, should I should I have an affair? Should I have an affair with this, with this person who's not my spouse? And you get this feeling like, yes, I should. <laughs> That's not the Holy Spirit. Okay, I, I know it's not because God has already spoken. He's already said, thou shalt not commit adultery. So the Spirit isn't going to tell you at any point it's okay to commit adultery. You may not like that answer, but that's the thing. The Holy Spirit isn't there to rubber stamp what you want to do. In fact, the Holy Spirit is always going to be pushing you to be transformed, to do honestly what you don't want to do, to become more like Christ. And in fact, that is one of the primary ways I verify it is I kind of push back a little bit. Like if I'm hearing something, I'm asking myself, is that something I want to do? Is that something that I would normally tell myself? Or is that like not what I want to do? And if it's not what I want to do and I keep hearing it and it's in line with God's word, you know, it's not in conflict with God's word, I'm, I'm getting a strong indication this is the Holy Spirit. Mm, that takes a lot of self-discipline. Yes. For example, um, and, and you say, well, what do you mean? You know, well, again, it's never going to tell you to do something. The Holy Spirit is never going to tell you to, to commit a crime, to hurt somebody, to do something selfish, right? But even just, let's put something very simple. If I'm, if I'm uh, laying in bed and I hear, and when I say hear, I've heard God speak audibly a couple of times, but usually it's just this strong whisper. It's like a whisper. It's like in your mind, it's in your heart. You feel, it's not you feel the words, almost like telepathy. Put it this way, lying in bed, and, and all of a sudden I hear the Spirit say, or I'm, I feel like I hear the Spirit say, hey, you should get up. You should get up and go downstairs. So I ask myself, did I just hear that right? Do I want to get up and go downstairs? And the answer, and the answer is, no, I want to stay in bed. <laughs> yeah. Right? And then I say, okay, well, I'm going to stay in bed. 
And then I hear it again. No, you should get up and go downstairs. And by that time, I am understanding, okay, this must be the Holy Spirit. Because mm-hmm. I've, I've confirmed to myself, that isn't what I want to do. I want to lay here. Yeah. <laughs> right? I want to lay here. And, the, and yet I hear the voice again. And I might push back one more time and say, yeah, well, no, what about if I stay here in bed? And I hear, no, you should get up and go downstairs. Yeah. And I'm like, okay. I need to get up and go downstairs. Or it might be the opposite. I, w- I could be saying, I'm going to get up now. I'm going to get, and uh, the Holy Spirit might say, no, stay in bed and rest. Yeah. You know, it, it could be anything. But the point is, is that that pushback helps me a lot to figure out what he's saying. What were we going to say? No, this is good because I have two moments where I was literally laying in bed and I felt like this pool. It was like 1 a.m. I felt this pool, God telling me to get up and I couldn't sleep. Like I was, it was whenever I was working on what, how I was going to share my abortion story. And I would, I was like, I took my notes and all of a sudden I had all these thoughts like running in my mind of how I was going to give the speech, how I was going to, not speech, but how I was going to share the story. And so I was writing and then I felt like God was telling me like, go get on live. And it was 1.30 in the morning and I was like, there's no way I'm just going to do it tomorrow. But I didn't Mm. think, I didn't ask that question of, is this something that I want to do? So that is a really good tip because I've had two instances where I felt like in the middle of the night, one to 3 a.m., God was telling me to get up and to do something. And I was like, okay, I'm just going to do it tomorrow. And then the difference where I felt, I actually didn't end up doing it the next day because I didn't Mm -hmm. feel, in that moment, I felt like a a passion, kind of like a fire to, to do it then. And then the next day, that passion and that fire didn't feel the same to yes. execute the same. And so, yeah, that's yeah. that's a good tip. Absolutely. And never let that go. I, I, if I'm hearing something, I'm not dismissing it as not him. I'm trying to, I'm just trying to test, is that him or is that me? And over time, you learn to recognize his voice. Like I don't question nearly as much as I, I used to because I recognize his voice so much easier now. So when I hear it, I'm like, okay. And I just obey because he's always got a reason. And, and often he doesn't want to tell you the reason because what he's wanting you to do is respond in faith. And if he tells you the reason, you can't respond in faith. You, you are given the opportunity to, to rationalize and reason. And say, oh, yes, that sounds like a good reason. But if he's saying to do it and you don't understand why, but you do it anyways, trusting him, now that, that's faith, right? Yeah. And that's what he wants to build in us is trust and faith. And he does do it with little things like that and sometimes big things. I mean, I know recently one of my relatives, I, I really don't like doing this because I'm not comfortable with it, but I was in prayer and I felt God tell me, I felt the Spirit tell me, go speak to so-and-so, to my relative, and tell them this, 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 and this. And I was like, whoa, I do, I do not want to go up to somebody and say... God told me to tell you. I mean, yeah. that you got to be really careful before you, because that's authoritative. If you say you're telling someone God said, that's authoritative. So I don't, I didn't want to do that, but so I really pushed. I was like in prayer, I was saying, God, are you really saying this? And he's like, Yes. Okay. Well, how about I tell him this, and it would be, some, I would say something different, and he'd say, No. And I said, Okay. Well, I'm gonna tell him this. No. Okay. How about this? And then I would repeat what I heard him say the first time. He'd say, Yes. <laughs> Wow. I was like, okay, and I would do that several times. Like, fine, all right. So, yes, okay, I get it. You know, and this voice is not coming from me, right? Yeah. I would say that for those who have not heard from God yet, because that's one of the common questions I get is, 
what if I don't hear from God? How do I how do I hear God's voice? The very what my common answer is, my most common answer is be in his word. Okay. Become so familiar with his word that he has new things to say to you. Because a lot of times we want to hear his voice. We want to hear what he has to say to us, but we don't want to spend time reading what he's already written. We don't want to read what he's already written to us, which is the Bible. But once you become very familiar with his word, you know his word, the more you do that, the more you will start to hear him. You'll hear his voice. You'll start to recognize his voice. And over time, it will get easier and easier. If you're born again, if you know Christ as Lord and Savior, you will begin to hear his voice. Yeah, that's good. And I can tell a difference as... Because at first it was like a task, like I had to make it like a thing, okay, I have to read the word. But it's like now I'm at a place where if I don't, I feel a difference. Like I feel like I'm missing missing something in my day. Um, and you can feel, you just start to understand God's character. And, and sometimes I'm reading and I'm like, the Bible is so good. It's so full of so much wisdom. And yes. it's just, it's amazing. It's a lot. It's a living word. It's our spiritual food. And uh, those who criticize it just aren't in it. And they, they don't have the spirit. They're not born again. Those of us that know God, that are born again, it, it's our life. Yeah. You know, the word bursts life in us. Yeah. And so on the topic of, okay, say, so we're kind of talking to two different people here throughout this conversation, but say somebody has a question, okay, well, how how do you know the Bible is real? You know, you're saying like you're on fire for Christ and the Bible is authoritative and it's the living word of God. But how do you know? Wasn't it written by man? How do you know it's not? It doesn't have human error in it and how it's truth. Well, there are lots of different evidences, lots of different ways to examine the scripture to determine, is it a, a trustworthy witness? So the first thing people need to understand is just the basic history of the Bible. And then we're going to talk about some of the evidences. Okay. How did the Bible come to be? Well, one, it's not actually one book. It's 66 different books by a bunch of different authors written over a period of about uh, 1,500 years, almost 2,000 years. So the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, uh, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, as we call them in English, the Jewish people call the Torah. In Hebrew, it's called the Torah, which means the law. And they're called the books of Moses. Now, those traditions said they were written by Moses. All of it, everybody throughout history in Judaism and then Christianity said they were written by Moses. Uh, there's been nobody that claimed any other author, except there are some, like, and I, I believe I'm one of them, who would say, I think God himself actually wrote all five of those books and gave them to Moses, already written down. And the scripture can be interpreted, its self-description can be interpreted to confirm that because there is a verse where it says God gave the Torah to Moses. However, again, the word Torah in Hebrew means law. So it could have been referring to just the law portion or it could have been referring to all five books. I personally believe that it was all five books because of phenomena like the Bible codes, which uh, I'll bring back in just a minute. Then you have pretty much all of what we would call the Old Testament has been accepted as God's word, was accepted and codified as God's word by uh, the Jewish people long before Christianity began, long before Christ. So that was already established. Then the New Testament, right around the time of Jesus' ministry and then his death, resurrection, and ascension, the church became very active. You know, he commanded the church to go out and make disciples. And they did. And within a very short period of time, all of the Gospels had been written. All of Paul's letters had been written. And even within uh, 
50 years of the resurrection and ascension of Christ, the Apostle John had written the book of Revelation. As far as the time frame goes, now uh, sometimes people criticize and they say, well, okay, but it was written by men. But as we just finished talking about with the Holy Spirit, we believe the Jewish people have always said Judaism and Christianity both teach, and Islam would say this too, that the Bible, that even though it was written down by men, that it was through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that they weren't writing their own words. And uh, I understand that process personally because there was a specific a book I was writing, a, a book called The Gospel According to Nature, which is a book where I try to interpret what God is teaching us through in symbolism, symbolically through creation, through nature. And there was many portions of that where I didn't really know what to write. And I was kind of facing a blank screen. And I would pray and I would just boom, just start typing. It would just come out. And it would be beautiful and it was fitting with everything. I was like, how did that happen? How did I write that? Okay, I don't know where that came from. And, but it was, it was God. It was God helping me do it. Now, I'm not claiming, but I'm not trying to say that that book I wrote, that portions of it are scripture or Bible or authoritative at all. I'm just saying I experienced a little bit of that process myself. Okay, when, when that happened. So I understand how God can inspire the prophets to write. Another criticism that is raised is that, well, we don't, you know, some of the books are excluded. The Catholic Church had this council, and they left out the Gospel of Thomas, and they left out these other things. And the truth about that is that people who, who use that as a criticism are not really understanding the history of the event and they're also not approaching it with the right perspective the approach that we take in the modern age was that they were trying to censor they were trying to keep us from spiritual knowledge that is contained in other books like the gospel of peter the gospel of thomas the gospel of mary a lot of the, the we call these the gnostic gospel mm. said it was a very narrow version of christianity that the church was excluding they were saying no we're only going to go with paul's christianity and we're going to limit it and uh and keep out all these other possibilities. That's kind of the viewpoint we have today, but that isn't actually how it went at all. So they were not looking at it as a censorship thing. What they, this, the council, the council of Nicaea uh, that came together to determine the canon of scripture in uh, 300 and I think it was 320 AD roughly. Uh, it's probably not the exact year, but the approach was to be able to declare to people what they were sure was God's word, not what they didn't want people reading. Because there was a problem. There was a cult that was rising up called the Gnostics. And the Gnostics were not really a branch of Christianity. They were trying to co-opt a lot of things about Jesus to give credibility to their teachings. But the Gnostics believed that everything spiritual is good, which that right there doesn't fit Christianity because Christianity said, no, there's God, God is good. And there's also the enemy, and, and he has spiritual forces that are bad. Mm -hmm. But Gnostic said everything spiritual is good. And they also said everything physical is bad, like all flesh is evil. Again, that doesn't even match Genesis. Genesis says God looked at his creation. He looked at man and woman that he created and he called them good. Yeah. Right? His creation is good. And they also claim to have secret knowledge, special knowledge that they would only teach you if you came into their club and did what they wanted and learned their secret handshakes and things mm -hmm. like this. Um, and, you know, which later became the, the Knights Templar, uh, picked up a lot of their stuff, and then later that became the Masonic Lodge. Mm. I was going to ask. A of, <laughs> yeah, and a lot of secret societies from today. So right. what was happening is the Gnostic Gospels were all written within, uh, you know, around 200 to 350 AD. So a long time, more than a century to two centuries after Jesus lived, died, and rose from the dead. 
Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John Gospels, it is widely known, were written very early, okay, very close to his time, you know, uh, around 50 AD. So within 20 years. And uh, Paul's letters, they had already been bundled. We have a copy of them that had been bundled and was being passed around as scripture to be studied among all the churches of the, of the, of the region dating from 70 AD. Okay, that is within 20 years of the date he wrote them down. So very quick. So what the church was coming to do was they call, it was a council where they, they brought in church leaders from the entire Christian world, from Arabia, from Europe, from Africa, from Israel. You know, they, they called them in from the entire Roman Empire and they said, okay, here's the problem. We've got all of these new documents, these new gospels, these Gnostic gospels that are creeping up, that are confusing people. And some people think that they're as reliable as Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, etc. And we need to all talk about this and all come to an agreement on what are we going to tell the world is for sure God's word that we know we can trust. And what are we not sure about? So they had, because to tell people that something is the word of God is a very strong thing. It's to say this book is authoritative for your life. It's God's word. It's your creator's word. It's not just man's word. That's a big statement. So they weren't looking to include everything they possibly could to just not limit any possibilities. They, that wasn't their intention. Their intention was we have to be careful what we give so much weight to, what we give that much authority to. So what are our criteria? Well, one, we all have to be in agreement that whatever book we're saying is God's word is going to be part of the New Testament. We have to agree that we all know who wrote it that there's no doubt who wrote it. There's no mystery around it, okay? And that isn't true for the Gospel of Thomas. The Gospel of Thomas was written much later, and it was known that Thomas didn't write it. That The one thing they knew is that Thomas didn't write it. <laughs> so that right there is a problem. Yeah. Um, but who wrote it? You know, that was up for debate. But Matthew, no. Everybody knew, all of the church leaders said, no, we all know Matthew wrote this. And they were much closer to his time than we were. Among them were men that were like the grandchildren of Matthew, right? They were disciples of the disciples of Matthew. And they were disciples of the disciples of John. And Luke. they were much closer than we are. And uh, they knew Luke had been written by Luke. They knew John had been written by John. They knew Paul's letter had been written by Paul, etc. So they knew all these things authoritatively. Then they also said, okay, well, is this document in agreement with all of the other books of the Bible that we've already said are God's word, namely the Old Testament and any of the others we've already agreed on are God's word? Because that's a major, that's another incredible feature of the Bible. You have 66 books written by dozens of authors written from at least no later than 1500 BC up through the time of Christ. That's 1,500 years. Authors in very different cultures, different political circumstances, all different personalities, all different viewpoints, and somehow they all agree with each other. Okay, that would be like somebody writing something today that's a religious document without the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that is in full agreement with somebody who wrote at the time of the end of the Roman Empire. And that there were other authors in between in the Middle Ages and the Reformation, the Renaissance, you know, World War II the 1800s, the American Revolution. There's authors from all these different times writing about God, writing about what he's saying, and they're all agreeing with each other. Mm. That's huge. That's real. I mean, how do you do that? Yeah. Human authors without God's inspiration could not do that. Yeah. Could not do that. Okay. So anyway, so that's uh, 
That's what they were doing. And so they asked themselves, do we know for sure who wrote it? Is it in agreement with the rest of scripture that we already know God inspired? And do all of the churches already recognize that this is God's word? That's why they were taking votes. Okay, They weren't taking votes for like popular opinion. They were asking, are we all in agreement that this is God's word or not? And they had churches represented from the whole known world at the time, the whole Roman Empire. And if all of them were saying, yeah, we all agree. We know who wrote this. We know it's God's word. We've all been saying it's God's word for 200 years. Okay, well, then that's official. We can trust that. We're all in agreement. All of us that have the Holy Spirit are saying this is God's word. We've already been recognizing that as such. We're in agreement. Gospel of Thomas. What about it? Well, we don't really know who wrote it for sure. We just know Thomas didn't write it. Uh, it doesn't really jive with a lot of the rest of God's. There's conflicts. Uh, there's things that he says that don't match everything else we've already understood as God's word from the Old Testament too. So what percent of us, you know, maybe 30% of the churches were using it. And the others were like, no, we don't like it. So there's okay, well then if we're not in agreement, then we can't include it. We're not going to include it. There's too many problems. Okay. So that's how the New Testament was formed. And that's a pretty reliable process. That's kind of, if you're trying, if you want to understand what is God's authoritative word, that's the process you'd want them to go through. It's only people who don't want God's word to have any authority. Mm -hmm. They just want to be able to explore whatever spirituality floats their boat, wherever they want to go. Those are the people that, that want all the spiritual books of the world to be included. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a really good point. Mm -hmm. That's why, you know, it's, it's just very different approaches. So that's generally how the Bible came about, why it's reliable. Dandy, what about, do you have any specific questions about maybe particular evidences people are looking for as far as the Bible's reliability? I didn't get any specific questions around that. I would love for you, I know you've mentioned it before in Monday Bible study class. There was somebody who wasn't, um, he was atheist and he read the gospels. Oh, yes. Do yes. you know who I'm talking yes. about? And then became a believer I would love for you to share that because that's just for somebody to say that they don't believe in the Bible or it's an ancient book, you're most likely not reading it. You most likely have not read it because there's so much evidence within the word of God for you to not come yeah. to that conclusion. So I would love right. for you to share that story. Yes. Okay. So yes, there was a, a man named Simon Greenleaf. He lived in, he was in the late 1800s. He was the president of Harvard's law school at the time. And he's, pretty important. He is the one who developed the rules of evidence for courts of law. So today, the rules that all courts of the world, most of the courts of the world follow as for what will be admissible as evidence and what will not be admissible, uh, they're following Simon Greenleaf's rules. So he's a pretty important guy in the legal world. And at the time, you know, somebody challenged him because he was an agnostic. I don't know that he was an atheist. I think he, I think he was an agnostic. He wasn't sure what he believed. But uh, someone challenged him and said, hey, have you ever applied your rules of evidence to the Gospels? And he said, no, I haven't. They said, well, we challenge you. So he said, okay. So he went and he examined the Gospels. He read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He studied them. And he basically said, I went to them with an with a unbiased mind just to determine, are these reliable witnesses? And based on the historical detail and the way things were described and recounted, he came away with the conclusion. He, he said, the four Gospels, he said, are actually more reliable witnesses than we allow in courts today. Like he said, my conclusion is they're actually more reliable than most of the witnesses we allow in court following my rules of evidence. So because of that, he became a, a Christian. 
He, he stopped being an agnostic and became a believer and follower of Jesus Christ. Uh, there's other things like, I mean, there's all kinds of, every time archaeology, unbiased archaeology, has made any discoveries, it always confirms the history portrayed in script, told in scripture. Uh, you may say, well, it's full of mythology. No, read a myth, read, a, read something about a Greek mythology and, ha- and pay attention to its tone, the level of detail, the way it portrays the gods. And then go and read the Bible and see how different they are. Mythology has no detail. The, the stories really are just kind of, ooh, you know, it's like a, you know, one of these movies we see today with CGI where everything's just all over the place. Mm-hmm. That's what mythology reads like. And the characters, the heroes are just the most amazing heroes. In the Bible, what you see is a very detailed history historical accounts with a lot of detail where in the middle of this history a miracle will occur but the miracles are never ascribed to men which mythology would do mythology elevates people and says oh hercules did this etc so yes we have samson for example you say well samson but the bible says no samson was a sinner who had problems with prostitutes and getting take, you know, giving himself away to women, and he wasn't actually the hero. The hero in the Bible is always God. He is the one who gave Samson supernatural strength, but at the moment Samson turned his back on God, it was gone. Mm-hmm. Samson himself is not elevated. So you have very historical accounts that are all validated. All the history is validated by archaeology, all of it, including the flood, Noah's flood, if you're willing to look at it. Uh, we can talk about that another time. Yeah. But the miracles are always God's doing. They're, they're surprising everybody. And if there is a creator who can create you and me, of course he can do a miracle. What's so surprising about that? I mean, why is that not expected? If God is intervening in history, he can do it, right? It's just a question of would he or will he because he doesn't normally do it. But you don't see people, even Moses, even Moses, Jesus is the only one in Scripture whose sins we don't know because he didn't have any. But we know Moses' sins, we know Abraham's sins, we know David's sins. None of them are elevated the way mythology would. That's one thing. But uh, the biggest evidence for the person of Christ is his resurrection. You know, you say, well, that's just a story. Well, is it? (laughs) Okay, I mean, you have Roman historians, secular historians confirm that Jesus lived and was crucified in Jerusalem. So that's a historical fact. Jesus Christ, if, if you say, well... Jesus wasn't a real person, well, then you're just ignorant of history. A secular historians confirm it. He lived, in, he was in Jerusalem, and he was crucified. Roman historians say that, not just Christian ones. So the question is, is where is his body? Why wasn't it produced? Because the Pharisees, you know, the ones that were driving his execution, the religious leaders that wanted him dead, and they got the Roman Empire to, to, to collude with them. The Roman Empire also ended up deciding they wanted him dead. They all knew that his disciples were claiming that he had said he was going to rise from the dead. And that's the very reason they put guards outside the tomb. So a few days later, three days later, when the disciples began saying that Jesus had risen from the dead and hundreds of people had seen him, why didn't the religious leaders just produce the body? That would have put an end to it really fast, right? Mm -hmm. Hey, everybody, here's the body of Jesus. We had him. Okay, and, and here he is. He didn't rise from the dead. That would have ended Christianity like that. Yeah. Because Christianity hinges on the resurrection and the person of Christ. Well, his enemies didn't do that, okay? And they did not want the disciples saying that he'd risen from the dead. They did not want that. If it had been in their power 
to stop it by producing the body, they would have immediately. Okay. Right. But, but they didn't. So then comes the question, well, okay, well, then the disciples, the disciples just stole the body and hid it and then claimed it. Okay, well, then why were they all willing to die for that lie? Like if they knew that was a lie, why would they die for that? Would you would you die for a lie? And that's a question I think everybody has to ask themselves. Mm-hmm. If you know something's not true, but you go out there and you start saying it's true because you want money or whatever you think you're going to get. But then you're arrested by the authorities and they're telling you, hey, if you will recant, if you will agree, if you will admit that this is not true, you don't have to die. Will you do that? What would you do? I don't know anybody that would die for something they'd made up. Right. How do you have a conspiracy of 12 people coming together and saying, and more honestly, and saying, hey, um, we're going to hide the body. We're going to say he rose from the dead. And no matter what, we're, none of us are going to admit that he didn't. Okay. And the further question, why are they doing this? I mean, and today you think of a cult leader getting uh, sex and power, right? And money, but they didn't get any of that. They were they were poor because they were saying they were kicked out of every economic participation structure. You know, they were kicked out of synagogues. They struggled to food and, and where to stay. They were paupers, and they certainly uh, didn't get any power. They were all tortured and executed. Mm-hmm. Why would you do that? Why? What is the value in creating that conspiracy for them? You know, it yeah. doesn't make sense unless they were convinced that he had risen from the dead. Mm-hmm. And they wouldn't be that convinced just on the word of someone who someone else who saw him. They would only do that if they themselves had seen him as they claim. And then we, and then you have a very powerful witness in the Shroud of Turin, right? I think we've talked about that before. But yeah. the Shroud of Turin is an object in Turin, Italy, in a cathedral, and it has it bears the image of the resurrected Christ. Suppose it was his burial shroud. And there's an image of him front and back, head to toe, that seems to portray Jesus who had been crucified as he would. And it was like as he resurrected, the resurrection power like burned an image into the cloth. So that cloth has been examined scientifically over the years. And originally they tried to call it a fraud because they tested it. They did carbon dating of a sample in the 1970s. And it came back as dating to the Middle Ages. And they said, okay, this was a fabricated in the Middle Ages. And that's the earliest we know about it existing anyways from whatever history records we have. So they discredited it. However, later it was shown, wait a second, in the Middle Ages, the shroud was in a fire. So little parts would have been burned. And these nuns had sewn a, a patch into one of the bottom corners to try to repair it. And that patch is what they sampled for the carbon dating. So they didn't even test the actual shroud. But it has been subjected to all kinds of scientific tests since then. And here's what we know. It's a photographic negative. It's not a normal image. It's done in a photographic negative fashion. So medieval artists weren't that good. Okay, they couldn't. If you've seen any paintings before the Renaissance, the paintings weren't very good. They didn't even understand shadowing, you know, very well and and three-dimensional art. How are they going to do photographic negatives? Second, there's no paint on the cloth. The image is burned in with radiation. That's been proven scientifically. But just on the very surface of the cloth and in a three-dimensional manner. So it's been burned at a level that our lasers typically are going to go deeper in that or any kind of paint or ink is going to go much deeper into the into the fibrils than it actually is. But the image is three-dimensional. So the parts of the cloth that were like touching skin, like the nose, have a, a little bit deeper burn than parts that were further away like the eye sockets. So when they examine it with computers, they've reconstructed it 
and it comes out as a three-dimensional image of a body being covered in a cloth. They've also examined the blood on the cloth, and the blood is consistent with the wounds of crucifixion. They are from an adult Jewish male, and uh, there's pollen on the cloth from the area around Jerusalem. Doctors have examined it, and they said there's so much blood on this cloth that somebody had to die to make it. And they even point out that the trail, the blood trails go in two different directions. There's one direction that they've, that they've gone down as if the, the body was erect, like upright. And then you can see where later the body was laid down, and so the blood trails change direction with the flow, change of gravity, mm -hmm. the direction of gravity, and they flow in a different direction. There's entire documentaries on this on YouTube and elsewhere people can watch. But there's so much evidence that the shroud is his burial shroud. And it is a, a, a supernatural image. And the best evidence of that is that we cannot recreate it today. Yeah. It's so insane how much evidence there is out there around Christianity and around Jesus's life. And so I think that's why so many people who don't believe we see them converting when they actually start to research, do their own research. And so that's what we encourage you to do is really, you know, diving into your own research and to always question things and to do your own due diligence. I just love the way that you break it down, you bring it to light and you make, especially in the beginning of this, you make it so simplistic. I know whenever I wasn't a believer, and I would I would just state the claim like how do we know what's real and I'm not so religious I'm more like spiritual I know there's a higher power but who am I to say that this group of people that believes in this God and their religion how am I and who am I to say that it's false and another question that we got and I relate to people who who state this, you know, what would you say to somebody who says they're not religious, they're spiritual and comparing what we believe, comparing Christianity to other religions out there? Oh, that's good. That's good. All right. So yeah, let me, add, there's a couple of things I wanted to say that one is what you're saying about when people begin to search yeah. and there is a pattern. There is a lot of evidence for Christianity. There is so much and, and you're right. And when you see when people actually began to seek God and search and try to say, is there evidence? Can it be proven? They almost always end up becoming a Christian because they become convinced of it. On the other hand, when you see people leaving Christianity, mm. it's always because their mother got cancer, they're feeling depressed, something happened, they lost a business, they something happened in their life that they didn't like, that, that hurt them, okay? Or they just want to rebel. You know, when people are going away from God, it's never because they've seen evidence. What it always is, is that they've been hurt. They've been hurt or they're wanting to rebel. And so it's emotional. Emotion takes them away from God. Rational evidence takes them to Him. Every single time, I've seen it over and over and over again. And uh, one more thing. So I want to talk about, and this will get to even your question on spirituality. Back to the video game coder analogy. So think of creation. Imagine that it is like, you got this video game master who's coded this immense world with all of these characters that actually are artificial intelligence. These characters in the game, he can watch them. But he's also able to chat with them. He communicates with them for those that are willing to communicate back. But if you had a video game master like that who created these characters, and if he created them with such detail and time and effort, he's got to feel a strong affection for them, right? Mm -hmm. If that video game master had the ability to go into the game with his own avatar, to be, a, to be an avatar in the game and interact directly with these other artificial intelligent entities, his characters, wouldn't he do that? If he had that ability, would he do that or would he not do that? And 
it, it does not seem rational to me that a video game master who had the ability to become an avatar and go interact with his own character wouldn't do that. He would every time. Yeah. And so God, our creator, it's not rational to think he wouldn't at some point want to become a man and interact with us. It's just not rational to think he wouldn't do that. Mm. And he did. And that is who Yeshua, Jesus, is, the Messiah. He is God in the flesh who came to interact with us face-to-face, no longer distant. And, of course, we killed him. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, we are rebellious. We didn't want to be ruled. But he forgave us. He's, as he's dying, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Mm-hmm. Right? And then he rose from the dead to show us, and you have an opportunity. Repent. Say you're sorry. Follow me as your king, and I will recreate you outside this video game in an actual body of flesh and blood into a glorified body to a new world. And that's what Christ is promising all of us. So to the person who says, I'm not religious, I'm, I'm just spiritual, there's, there's kind of questions that have to be asked about that. Like, what do you mean? Okay, what do you mean by religious? Do you mean you don't want to try to control God through ritual? Is that what you mean? Because that's what religion is. Religion is trying to control God and get him to do what you want by performing certain rites and rituals. Okay, so is that what you mean? That you're not religious, you're spiritual, you're saying you don't try to control God through ritual? I would say, well, do you use crystals? Mm. Isn't that what crystals are? That's religious. The zodiac, astrology, that's religious. That's not spiritual. Mm. That's trying to control the universe, control God, manipulate things by doing things. You're trying to uh, get control over your world. Okay, it doesn't matter what you call it. You're just saying, well, you think Christianity is oppressive and this is freedom. No, you're just engaging in religion, which is trying to control God and and control your world. Right. Yeah, that's good. Now, spiritual, true spiritual, is relationship with your Creator who created your spirit. Okay. And yes, everyone is spiritual. You don't, you may, maybe you just mean you're aware that you're spiritual, but we are all spiritual beings having a physical experience. Mm -hmm. Okay. But guess who else is spiritual? The enemy, the devil, and the demons. They are also spiritual. So, what kind of spiritual do you mean? Do you mean that you're evil or do you mean that you're aligned with good spiritual? Because usually when people say that, they're not discerning. They're saying everything spiritual is good, you know, very similar to the Gnostics. Right. No, a lot of what is spiritual is not good. Okay. There are, there's an evil side to the spiritual world, just like there is a good side, God's side. So whenever you do spiritual practices that are outside of what God has declared to be his will, and since he loves us, his will is always for our good, um, we're engaging usually with the, with the enemy who's a liar, and he will portray himself. Like you hear a lot of new age spiritual people talking about uh, how they have done psychedelics or things like this, and they've encountered uh, the ascended masters or the ascended guides. And those are demons. It's that simple. And they're pretending to be angels of light, as the Bible explains. And their instructions and guidance is always the same. It's always half truth, half lies. They will say things that will, enough things that are true to give you confidence that you can trust them and tell they tell you to do the thing uh, that will destroy you, mm-hmm. right? Because that's ultimately what they want to do. That's how the enemy works. So if someone says, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual. I just kind of think like none of that is probably true. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> none of what they just said is probably true because they, they probably aren't defining religion correctly. Mm-hmm. 
they're just thinking about Catholic or they're basically saying, I'm not Catholic, I'm new age is kind of is what they really mean. Mm-hmm. And if that's what they would say, I'd say, okay, that's true. You're not Catholic, you're new age. Okay. Or you're not Baptist, you're new age. Okay. I get that. But now we can talk about is the new age true or not? Is it safe or not? Because just because you're engaging with some spirit, real spiritual things doesn't mean that you're engaging with good spiritual things. You know, these could be things that you think are good that are going to destroy you. Yeah. And it's so crazy when you think about because I mean, I have a lot of friends and this is kind of where I came from too, because I was searching for uh, like control. I was searching for to have control over my life. And it felt good when I thought that I was in control because I knew, okay, if I could get my thoughts under control and they're telling me that I can create through my thoughts and create this life that I want through new age practices, through this power of self, and that I liked that. And I liked believing that because I felt like I had control over my life. And so you defining what being religious is, is it's so crazy because it just takes me back to like the tricks of the enemy, right? He tells us what we want to hear. And it's just so crazy with you explaining how twisted, (laughs) how twisted it is. Yes, you're you're right. And that's, it basically comes down, it boils down to the the most basic question is this. Do you want to be, does a person want to be their own God? Are you your own God or are you going to submit to... God, God, your creator. Mm -hmm. That's it. There's really nothing else that matters. Okay. And you can call it Buddhism. You can call it Hinduism. You can call it New Age. You can call it Catholicism. You can call it Evangelical Christianity. Whatever you want to call whatever flavor it is. Because there are people who act like Evangelical Christians, who call themselves Evangelical Christians, who are actually still just doing religion. They're going to church in order to get blessings for their business or blessings from society. They're doing these traditions, they're going to church, they're going through the motions, they're doing these things because they think that if they do these things, that God owes them a blessing, that he will bless them in response. And that's their motivation. And their motivation then is they think they're in control. And that is really the bottom line is to be saved, you must give up control period. Mm-hmm. And that is what's scary to people. And that is why Jesus constantly talked about faith. Faith is not belief that God exists because everybody knows that God exists. Even those people who are denying it, they know it in their heart of hearts. Deep down, they know it. We all know it. We know he's there. Demons believe that Jesus is God's son. So that's not the faith that saves. Believing Christ is the son of God and that he rose from the dead is not the faith that saves, submitting to him, trusting in him as your Lord and Savior with your heart, trusting that Jesus rose from the dead and that he did that to save you, trust that is what saves because that is giving up control. That is saying, I can't do it on my own. I am going to trust God instead of myself. And would you say, like, if is that how somebody does it? Like, how does somebody do that? Give up control and trust in God? So that is a wrestling, okay? That is a wrestling. And the name Israel means one who wrestles with God. God doesn't mind us wrestling with him. He's the perfect father, and a lot of fathers love to wrestle with their kids. So he what, he what he doesn't want us to do is disengage. He doesn't want people to walk away from him. He wants them to engage. He invites us to wrestle with him, to ask him questions, to seek him. And sometimes we struggle with those answers because trusting is a life time of practice but there does to be saved though there does come that moment of 
first trust, first repentance and just vulnerability. To be saved means you have kind of rolled over. It's like you've seen a dog. You know how dogs will roll over and let you pet that scratch their belly? Mm-hmm. I don't know if you knew this, but animal experts say that dogs do that as a sign of complete trust. No. Because they will not expose their throat or their belly to an enemy mm-hmm. because they're very vulnerable parts of their bodies. So when they roll over and they let you do that, they're saying like, I trust you so much. I love you. And that's kind of what we do in relationships with your spouse, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, intimacy comes from vulnerability. You're putting down your defenses and that allows intimacy. You trust somebody enough to be vulnerable, to trust they're not going to hurt you. And that allows intimacy. Mm-hmm. So really what saves is us rolling over and exposing our throat and bellies to God. Wow. That's pretty much what it is. It's like saying, I give up, Father. I know you're God. I know you're creator. I know you're my king. And I know I've sinned against you. I acknowledge my sin and I repent. To repent means to go 180 degrees in the opposite direction. To say, I'm vulnerable to you, but I trust you. I love you. I think you want what's good for me. I think you want to save me. So I'm going to trust. I'm asking for the blood of Jesus to be made available to pay for my sins, to atone for my sins. And I'm going to trust in him as Savior. And I want to follow you as king. I want to do what you want me to do from now on because I trust you. Mm. Not myself. And uh, for those who still want to trust themselves, I would ask them, when's the last time you let yourself down? We do. We let ourselves down all the time. We're really not that trustworthy. Yeah. (laughs) Right? Yeah. No, that's true. Yeah, that's real. What do you feel like holds people back from that, that hesitancy? To fully submit and trust well there's a that's a really good question danny um i think that there's a lot of things that hold people back ultimately we're all rebellious in our heart you know we want to be in control we want to be our own god so that holds us back but for a lot of people there is uh something else which is uh they didn't have a good father right so trusting in god as father as the as the perfect father frankly, I think is easier for people who had a good father. So we've done a lot of work with people at Path to Hope over the years. Uh, we go door to door. We've discipled a lot of different kinds of people. And what we've understood and seen is that people, we tend to project onto God the image of our human father, whether we wanted to or not. We don't even realize we're doing it. So uh, for example, in my case, I had a, I did have a great father. I had a, a wonderful father. I still, he's still alive. I have a great dad. Um, but if I had to say, well, what is a, what is a, a weakness of my dad? Well, my dad was probably a little bit too laid back with rules. He wasn't firm enough sometimes. And so growing up, I kind of thought God was that way. And, uh, but God is the perfect father. He's firm when he needs to be firm and he's gentle when he needs to be gentle. So I had to learn that, no, that was one area where God was not like my dad, but I had assumed he was because that was my experience. But that can carry over to people uh, in really hard ways sometimes. So somebody who was abandoned by their father, they're going to feel like God isn't there for them, that he's not there, that they're alone, that they're on their own, that he's not going to be there when they need him. People who were abused by their father, especially sexually abused by their father, they're going to struggle with the belief that God's going to abuse them. They're going to suspect that. Right, and they're going to have an especially difficult time trusting him because of that. He's going to have to wrestle really hard through that because he's not like that. God is the perfect father. He doesn't abuse. He loves. He treasures 
He, he cares for us. He's a good shepherd. If you had a dad who was uh, just uh, emotionally absent, he was present, but he, he was emotionally not real close, uh, then you think God is that way, that he's distant, and he doesn't want to talk to you or hear your heart or feelings. You know, that's not true either. God is the perfect father. He wants to hear your heart or feelings. If your dad was very angry all the time, you feel like God is angry all the time. If you, your dad was critical, you think your dad, God is critical. You know, on and on and on. You just ask yourself, what was my dad like? What were the negative things about my dad? And am I believing that God is the same way? Spend time meditating on that, working through it, and understanding that, no, you're, he is the perfect father. And the only places he's like your human dad are wherever your human dad did good, loving things. That's really good. I've never thought about that or put that together before. So I'm glad I asked that question. This is where we're going to stop for part one. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. I know I didn't speak much in, in this interview, but every single time he's talking, I'm really listening and he, I just really love the way he goes into detail about everything. So if you liked this week's episode, share it with a friend, share it. Let's get the truth out there and come back for next week's episode of part two. We have incredible questions still left unanswered. All right, let's bring it in, giving you a virtual hug because you just finished another episode of Blackouts to Breakthroughs podcast. And you know what? You just deserve it. The reviews and subscriptions mean a lot to me. So if you love today's episode, make sure to rate and subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss out on any other episodes. Also, I'd love to hear your takeaways. So feel free to screenshot this episode, put it in your stories and tag me at Blackouts to Breakthroughs on Instagram with your biggest takeaways so I can connect with you and reshare your post. I can't wait to hear from you. Until next time, friend.